gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It's not just a dessert topping, it's a floor wax. Um, okay, so, so much going on. Where to begin? Okay, I'm recording this Friday morning, and um, exciting news. We got uh, Pippa, a new shipment to tennis balls, but we'll, we'll save the important stuff for later. Uh, last night, Donald Trump was arrested, arraigned, whatever you call it, um, in Georgia. Um, maybe I'm just jaundiced and dead inside, but I just didn't find it riveting television or any all that interesting, right? And it, like the constant sort of, what does this mean? What does this mean? Air, filling airtime stuff was, I thought, pretty boring, I'm not saying this stuff isn't important. Obviously, it's important. I write about it a lot. I talk about it a lot and all this kind of stuff. But I I don't know. I just thought it was really not worth all of the live coverage just to have Trump give a bogus statement and mugshot. I will say, you know, on the important stuff, there is no way on God's green earth that if Donald Trump is 6'3", which I believe that he weighs 215 pounds, um, apparently, they don't weigh you in. It's not like, you know, the weigh-in in a boxing match. You, this aides just fill out some forms. And I say this as a guy who is 6'3", and who still looks very much like a before picture for some weight loss ad campaign. But I just know he's not 215 pounds. Muhammad Ali, when he was sort of in his prime, was like 216 pounds. I know what I looked like when I was, two, last time I was 220 which was a few years ago, and um, I'm heavier than that now, and so is Donald Trump. I don't think this is the kind of thing, we shouldn't make this sort of like the birther, you know, the equivalent of the birther thing where people get obsessed about it, but it's a lie. I just think it's fundamentally, obviously a lie, and um, as, a, as a fat American, I take offense to it. On the debate stuff, I'm sure everybody's sick of the debate punditry. I just want to make two or three quick, points on it. Well, I'll see what the third one is. There are only two in my head. First of all, I did Chuck Todd's podcast yesterday and an analogy I couldn't run with for, you know, his inside the beltway mainstream corporate media podcast is one I am free to indulge here. Some of you may recall I had a rat guy. His name escapes me at the moment, but I'm sort of obsessed with urban rats. We did a whole podcast about rat stuff. And I want to do more podcasts on rat stuff because it turns out from that conversation, I learned that I need a rat geneticist on here or, or evolutionary biologist who studies, who focuses on rodents because um, I have more questions about rats. Regardless, one of the most interesting things from my conversation about rats that we did have was uh, that I learned was that Scientists know remarkably little about rats, which is really kind of amazing given how, trust me, I'm getting to my point, uh, given how we have, um, that literally rats cost the United States tens of billions of dollars every year in terms of fire damage, disease, all these kinds of things, maybe, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars. Costs the world trillions of dollars probably when you think about uh, lost grain and disease and fires. And the fire thing, just so you know, or if you don't remember from the podcast, the fire thing is, trust me, I'm getting to my point. It's just I'm, I'm, I'm indulging my rat obsessions, uh, my rotophilia. The fire thing, if you um, don't recall, is because rats like to make nests um, in warm spots. And in a lot of buildings, particularly old buildings, Warm spots are uh, the power transformers or circuit breakers or other places where there's a lot of electrical wiring. And so when you build a whole bunch of really dry stuff inside a place, it's not hay, but, you know, ripped up paper, whatever, um, inside, um, you know, a place with a lot of wiring and exposed wiring and you add some rat urine and who knows whatever else. And also rats like to chew on the wiring. And so there were some crazy estimates that something like 20% of urban fires or 10% of urban fires are the result of rats. 
So just, rats are really expensive um, and costly. And so you'd think that we would know a lot about them. You'd also think we know a lot about them because rats are used in labs all the time. And here's the problem. It turns out that lab rats, which have been eugenically bred to be good lab rats, have very little similarities with actual wild rats. Including when I say wild rats, I, I don't just mean rats in like the wilderness, because I, I, I would guess that, you know, vast proportion of rats are sort of human environment creatures at this point. You can't learn a lot about sort of wild rat or urban rat, you know, behavior, never mind, or even physiology, right, um, from lab rats. Moreover, the rats you see in cities typically aren't normal rats. These are rats who are basically uh, tend to be exiles or uh, because they're sick or they don't get along well with other rats or because they're trying to set out new colonies for because they're not accepted in their own colony or whatever. So like if you see a rat out in the open, particularly in the daytime, that rat is weird. That rat is atypical. That rat is abnormal um, for whatever reason. And maybe it just wants to be a great chef in Paris, but whatever. It's not a normal rat. Real rat colonies, you don't see very much because they're in sewers, they're in, you know, in basements and, and, and other places where um, they try to stay away from humans. And so rat biologists actually don't know a lot about rats because it's very difficult to get down in there where the rats actually are. And so this brings me to the debate. And I'm not comparing everybody to rats. But when you have a race with 40% where, where the front runner is ahead by like 40 points and you have a debate with everybody except the front runner where everybody's afraid to talk about the front runner for the most part, you can talk about how the debate was interesting this or entertaining that or stupid the other thing. That's all fine. But the degree to which it is remotely relevant to what is actually going on is uh, limited. So to me, it's sort of like studying rats in a pet store or in a laboratory or in some other sort of controlled artificial environment absent the actual way rats live in the wild, so to speak. It is not an actual, it doesn't actually tell you what you need to know about rats or give you the full picture about rats because it is an artificial environment. And that debate in Milwaukee the other day might as well have been in a terrarium. It was for, however, you know, it, hey, it's interesting and good that Nikki Haley disagrees with Vivek Ramaswamy, who I, I, I just want to be very clear, I loathe. Um, and Nikki was right and Vivek was wrong and all these kinds of things. And it's good that she stood up against this BS and yada, yada, yada. But, um, and you can draw some interesting conclusions to say about future fights in the GOP and, oh, look, it's actually two Indian Americans going at each other. That's interesting too, blah, 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 blah. But in terms of the context of the presidential race, it's all pretty friggin' meaningless. And these guys are just like unwilling to deal with the fact that Trump is the giant friggin' rat eating panther circling around the terrarium. And everyone inside the training is just sort of pretending he's not out there. And so it's all just, it's, 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 it's biodome politics in a way that I just think is um, kind of pathetic. Oh, and so like, there were a bunch of other points I want to make about, you know, like, I, I actually, I don't take notes very much. I wish I did. Like, uh, there's a part of me, the underachiever in me, you know, who winged his way academically through high school and, um, and, and to a certain extent college. I'm sort of proud that I don't take notes and, you know, I don't really have notes for this thing. And I don't, you know, I, I write G-File, first draft and all that kind of stuff. I wish I could write. I wish I had the muscle memory and the discipline to take notes at this point because my brain is starting to go. My memory is starting to go. There are all sorts of things. I have all sorts of ideas that I'd like to write about and then I just forget about. And I'm trying to like, I'll start sending emails to myself and all that kind of thing. But anyway, I took, I took notes while watching the debate and I didn't get to use a lot of them. And I don't want to write about the debate uh, because, you know, I, I think it's it's really old news at this point. So I mentioned some of I used some of my notes in my, the Dispatch Live, which was pretty good. I used some of them in the Dispatch podcast yesterday, which was also pretty good. But there were just a couple of points that I didn't get to make, I think, are worth making. And, and, and just one of them, 
I think Nikki Haley missed a real opportunity when Mike Pence, they're arguing about abortion, and Mike Pence said, you know, Nikki's point is we need consensus if we're actually going to do anything about abortion. And I generally agree with her as a, as a practical matter and as a political matter, whether it's her position as smart politics or not. For her personally, I'm not sure, but I think she's right about where the GOP needs to find a rhetorical safe harbor for a little while and pursuing consensus strikes me as about as good as one as any. And then Pence, who I think is wrong on the political issue of abortion insofar, look, I'm not begrudging anybody who's pro-life. I think he's sincerely pro-life. I'm not going to get into an argument about whether being pro-life is right or wrong in the same way I'm not going to get into the pro-choice is right or wrong thing, at least not right now. What I mean by when I say he's wrong is he wants to have a federal ban on abortion. And I think logically he's got a better argument, right? As a matter of Thomistic Aristotelian reasoning, he's right that the moral law really on a matter like this really shouldn't countenance the differences between, you know, Rhode Island and Kentucky. Um, And I think, you know, Tim Scott is right about that too. Although Tim Scott's problem is, is like he's, he does the pro-life spiel and then says, he says, you know, it shouldn't, you know, moral law shouldn't stop at a state's border and blah, 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 blah. And it should be one rule for everybody. And that's why we should have at least a six-week ban on abortion. Well, the six-week thing is an arbitrary thing, too, if you take the pro-life argument seriously on its own terms. But how did I sucker myself into talking about the pro-life stuff? Oh, so Pence. Anyway, so Pence says to Nikki, you know, after Nikki does her consensus spiel, Pence says, consensus is the opposite of leadership. And I just, I can't begin to tell you how wrong that is on the merits. I mean, Nikki's blown opportunity was to come back and say um, something like, uh, I'm sorry, you know, Mike, but building consensus is actually the essence of leadership. And it is. Building consensus is what leaders do. Staking out an, an extreme, quote unquote, extreme position politically, morally, whatever, and just saying, come fight me on it. It's not, you know, it's a kind of leadership sometimes. It's also a kind of asininity often. But actual leadership tries to bring people around, right? It tries to bring people to your position. And when you accomplish this at scale, that's called building consensus. And I just think that Pence is sort of, Pence was just completely wrong about, about that. But this is one of the problems you get with debates is that they... And, and with politics in general, is that what is wrong in the grander picture of things is right for you for your own narrow political interests, which explains basically 80% of the garbage that comes out of FX's mouth. The other point I want to make, and maybe that'll be a segue off of this, is I haven't read it yet, but Tevi, um, longtime uh, friend and friend of the podcast, uh, Tevi Troy has a piece in the journal arguing that we should get rid of moderators. I, again, I haven't read it. I just saw the stuff on Twitter about it or the website formerly known as Twitter. I'm sure he makes a good argument for it. Uh, I'll tell you, the, I'd much rather we got rid of audiences. And I don't mean TV audiences. I mean the studio audiences. I mean the crowds. To me, this is one of the best examples of, first of all, how we treat politics like a form of entertainment. Like all the booing and cheering and all of that kind of stuff that messes with with anybody's mind, right? It, and I don't just mean the politicians up on the stage who, who are taking cues from the audience and playing to the audience. I mean the public viewers at large. We saw some of this, you know, with how deceptive this can be with the Caitlin Collins town hall with Trump. They had a bunch of hardcore MAGA types in the audience, in part because they didn't, they didn't think about the audience enough. The audience applauded every time Trump said something asinine and booed every time uh, Caitlin Collins said something truthful. I mean, if you, if you don't think that like booing and cheering has, or laugh tracks have power over individuals, you know, just, just watch sitcoms, you know, without laugh tracks. You know, I mean, like there's a reason why TV shows have laugh tracks or comedy, you know, sitcoms have laugh tracks. There's a reason why totalitarian regimes use crowds as props. They're, it's incredibly powerful 
way of manipulating the observer by making you, by enforcing or, or ensorcelling or uh, seducing people to take a, um, a position by the crowd. You know, this is, I'm not going to get into my long thing about how much I hate crowds and how I think crowds are dangerous. But um, I think the booing and the cheering is a way to, has the effect of manipulating the viewer into thinking some position is more popular than it is. And also into uh, misleading journalists. I mean, a lot of the coverage is, oh, the audience booed at this or cheered at that. Well, you know, that room is full of all sorts of vested parties. People who are all in for one campaign or one cause, and they're going to cheer stuff that's doesn't that they don't even think deserves to be cheered because they're rooting for a team. And you know, I've I've talked about this before, but like how I think uh, one of the it's not the main reason it's it's but it's, it was a contributing factor. One of the reasons why the French Revolution went off the rails and the American Revolution didn't is that so many of the meetings of the French revolutionaries were open to the public. And so you had drunk rabble-rousers who were in the rooms, in these salons, in these um, auditoriums and, and, and essentially courtrooms, cheering the most radical statements, booing the most moderate statements. And it had this catalytic effect of, of driving people to more and more rhetorical extremes that they couldn't peel away from. And I think that that goes on to a lesser extent, obviously, with having debate audiences. And so if you just had everybody out there with no applause, no cheers, not because the audience behaved itself, which this one didn't, because they just didn't exist, I think you would process a lot of the stuff differently. Um, and also you just have more time to listen to these people. And anyway, so I think it's it's one of these examples of how uh, in another one of my obsessions, which is how transparency isn't always good. Um, it's funny. Um, there are a bunch of lefties and libertarians, to their credit, who despise Donald Trump, are glad he's being prosecuted, but who nonetheless are sort of taking a stand and saying, this just shows why releasing mugshots is bad. And I've never really thought about the issue of releasing mugshots very much. Um, I find the argument pretty compelling. I'm not saying I'm persuaded. I just want to noodle it more. But the argument argument that it's prejudicial and it's unfair, all you've done is be accused and then you have this thing splashed out in public, particularly in the Internet age, right? I mean, it was a little, it was a little different prior to the Internet where, you know, a, a newspaper editor needed a compelling news interest in posting a mugshot or uh, you would have to be a wanted criminal for some other offense sort of on the run and they would use your mugshot for identification purposes and wanted posters. But now in the, you know, in the age of uh, the Daily Mail and TMZ and, and, and all the various, you know, drudge and whatever, release it, publicly releasing mugshots, you know, there's a good argument against it. And to me, this is another, you know, like, so let's just sort of stipulate, I agree with the argument. I still want to think about it a little bit. Um, there may be, it's just one of these things that there may be things I don't know about the argument that are worth knowing. Um, but provisionally, I agree with the argument. And let's just say I agree with the argument. This is another good example of why transparency is bad, right? Um, the idea that shining a light on everything for all of the public to see is a good thing um, is very compelling to a lot of people. It's, it's been compelling to reformers for a very long time. Um, and this is a classic example. Actually, it's not a classic example, but it is a good example. It's an illustrative example. Good arguments for reforms eventually hit a point of diminishing returns. And this is one of these things that I think um, a lot of people don't appreciate. Let's just stick on the transparency thing, right? So transparency, back in the day when all sorts of crooked stuff was done behind closed doors, smoke-filled rooms, all the rest, there's a really good argument for sunshine laws, for 
um, getting at for Freedom of Information Act stuff, um, for um, opening up the nomination process, right? And uh, I'm not saying I agree to all those arguments, but like I'm, I'm saying that in, at the con at, at, at the time in the context of the moment, the they had a lot of persuasive power and for good reason. And um, but when you start accomplishing, when you start taking care of uh, the low hanging fruit, right? When you solve most of the problem, there are always a group of people, often because they're incentivized, because they're activists who constantly need to um, justify the continuation of their organization, of their fundraising appeals, of the career path that they've picked. I'm not, it's not necessarily evil or whatever. It's also because they're, they're true believers. So they've convinced themselves that they need to st- stick on this to the bitter end and deal with the last 5 10% of a problem um, until it's completely eliminated from life. And, um, and the problem is, is that it becomes much more expensive to fix the last 5 or 10%. And also, the last 5 or 10% may not be much of a problem because you've actually gone too far and you went, you went in a good direction and you passed the point of diminishing returns and now you're in the realm of unintended consequences. And so, I, I know this won't be a great analogy to some people, but, um, you know, in feminism, the arguments for feminism started certainly with the benefit of hindsight, really, really strong. Because there was a lot of injustice. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There were a lot of problems to be dealt with. Um, women's suffrage, women as property, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of property rights issues for women where they couldn't actually own their own property. Uh, institutional sexism, bars, all sort of, you know, prohibitions on all sorts of professions, prohibitions into all sorts of schools, all of these things, leg- super legitimate, pressing arguments. But as you take care of those, as you fix those problems, the problems that are left are less pressing, more complicated, more difficult to fix, and more controversial. And so, like, first wave feminism, very hard to find anybody but some sort of neo-reactionary poltroons um, who are, like, really offended by women's suffrage, you know, and all that. Um, I mean, I know Candace Owens and Ann Coulter played stupid games about taking the vote away from women and all that, but it's dumb performative nonsense. Um, and and so you can sort of pick, you can pick your moment, whether it was 73, 83, 93, whatever, but at some point, the cause of feminism loses its widespread urgency and becomes much more narrow because the fundamental problems have been taken care of. You can do a similar argument about gay rights. It's like the argument about like the problems besetting gay people as a civil rights thing today. I'm sure there, there are things that are out there. You know, there are arguments out there about why, you know, gay rights organizations still need to exist about for this issue or that issue. But by definition, they're going to be kind of niche issues because the big issues, the gay rights, you know, movement won, you know, gay marriage, all that stuff, right? Don't ask, don't tell is gone. All of that stuff is gone. And so what's left is just going to be much more concentrated, much, much more narrow. Um, To give an example that, you know, makes that, that, that gores an ox on the right. Um, you know, Ramesh Panur has been making this point forever that, you know, the right became obsessed with cutting taxes. And I, and this guy, I like cutting taxes, but, um, like the Wall Street Journal in particular, but that whole, the whole sort of universe of, of sort of supply cider types, some of whom were friends of mine, became obsessed with the, the pressing need to cut, uh, marginal tax rates for high-income people. And um, what gets left out of that story is that Reagan and subsequent, you know, Republicans, but really it started with Reagan's, they cut it from a very high rate to a much lower rate. I I don't want to, you know, in the 70s to in the high 30s, or I don't know where it is today. I'm not going to do tax policy here. But the point is, is that the benefits you're going to get 
from the problems of having very high marginal income tax rates, most of the benefits you're going to get from dropping from like 70 to 38, right? And the problem is, is that there's so many people who are committed to this argument, committed to this cause, who keep think, who kept thinking that, no, 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 we got to keep going. Like, this is still the issue for economic policy. It's really not, you know, or it's much less of one because you've gotten 80% of the benefits that you would get from that initial step down, from that initial cut. Uh, there's sort of analogy in this to, um, uh, gosh, how do they get on this? Anyway, there's, I just, it's in my head. Um, and I write about this a bit in my underrated second book, Tyranny Clichés. Um, in environmental cleanup stuff, the last like one or 2% of the mess is more expensive to clean up than um, the first 98 or 99%. Often. I'm not an expert in, in this stuff, but like super fun things. And that's because when you're cleaning, let's say you're cleaning up some toxic waste site. The initial cleanup, you can clean up with bulldozers and dump trucks, right? Because you're just scooping up giant mounds of mess. But then you got to bring in shovels to get the smaller stuff. And then eventually you got to essentially, I mean, I'm just a metaphor here, but like you got to bring in the tweezers because that last little bit, it's in the soil and it's somewhere deep, profound level. It's just much harder. It's in the fibers, right? So like when you're picking up dog poop on your carpet of the mass, 99% of it is really easy to take care of. But that last 1% takes a lot of elbow grease. And, um, and I think that that sort of applies to all sorts of things in politics where we lock into something that is that was good and important to do and we can't let go of it when most of the progress has already been made and it becomes this categorical imperative to see it through to the very end. And I, I can make this argument about all sorts of things, about racism, about inequality, about whatever, but I think it's an important way to think about things is that, um, you know, the... The point of diminishing returns and um, uh, and the last one percent are um, often just left out of policy making. Oh, I got onto that because of the transparency thing, right? So transparency was good for a lot of things where it was necessary, but I think we've gone too far. And now we turn cameras on everything, we shine bright lights on everything, and it erodes uh, Republican virtue. It's also a barrier against corruption. I, I completely open to that, but um, it makes it more difficult to to actually do the work of government when you have to be out in the open about every single thing. And you've heard me talk about that a bunch of times before, so I won't get further into it. Where to go? Oh, so um, I won't dwell on this, but uh, this morning it was a. Uh, and I don't want to speak for any colleagues, but on Twitter this morning, uh, Mike Lee tweeted this thing in defense of Mark Meadows in response to something that Chip Roy had said in, in defense of Mark Meadows. And like, I don't know if Mark Meadows is guilty of a crime yet. I think he is. I suspect he is. I think he did all sorts of bad things. Um... But that's a conversation for another time. Uh, the Both Lee and Roy, um, quoting from memory here, um, made it sound, they, they were like, Mark Meadows is one of the most honorable, genuine people I've ever met. You know, it was like that kind of statement. And I get it. They're defending a friend. That's fine. Defend a friend, whatever. This is a great example of how friendship is more corrupting than money. Um, but whatever, defend him. If he's your friend, that's fine. Uh, I tend not to go in public and defend friends who've done something wrong, um, at least not on those terms. But uh, if, if they honestly think that Mark Meadows did nothing wrong and is completely innocent of all of these charges and all of that, that's fine. Let him make that argument. But what's funny about it to me is is, and I, I don't necessarily mean this as a criticism of Chip Roy or of, 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 of Mike Lee, who I have, my, I have my disagreements with both about various things and not always the same disagreements. 
of my experience with politicians, firsthand personal experience and the experience of friends and colleagues who told me about things contemporaneously when they happened, of politicians in Washington, Mark Meadows is one of the most duplicitous, dishonest, non-genuine crap weasels I have met in my time in Washington. He's a glad-handing liar. And I'm not talking about policy stuff. I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking about like he makes promises to other politicians and and he knowingly is lying when he's making the promises. He has said things to my face I know he is lying about. I just think it's, again, regardless of all the Trump stuff, regardless of whatever relationship Chip Roy and Mike Lee have with them, they may have a completely different experience. And Mike Lee is such a strange duck that he might have been snowed by Mark Meadows' charms and actually thinks that Mark Meadows is a genuine and, and, and sincerely honest person. I'd be more surprised at Chip Roy if that's actually his real, full and real, if that's the full story of his opinion of of Mark Meadows, because my my impression of Chip Roy is that he doesn't suffer BSers lightly. And man, Mark Meadows is one of the great, not only is he great because he's not good at it, um, but he is one of the most prolific BS artists in Washington. It does not shock me at all that he was basically uh, Trump's Renfield during all of this, because I don't think, I just honestly don't think he has much backbone or character. Remember, there are the stories about how you know he dropped to his knees and begged uh, John Boehner for forgiveness because he had screwed Boehner about something. I just think he's he's a weaselly dude, and I just think it was I don't. So it's funny. I put it in Slack, and we had a, a robust and interesting conversation about this. But I don't want to get my, I, I you know Slack needs to be somewhat confidential, and um, so I'll just leave it there. The Heritage Foundation. So. Uh, my colleague Kevin Kosar at AEI responded to some news on this news on Twitter about um, how the head of Heritage Defense Policy Shop, or one of the heads of it, maybe the sub departments, I'm not sure, um, has quit Heritage over Heritage's position um, about uh, aiding Ukraine. And Heritage's grotesque and intellectually pathetic ads about uh, opposing uh, aid to Ukraine. And I'll I'll get to the substance of all that in a second. But uh, my colleague Kevin at AI, um, he said in response to this, look, when the president of your think tank stakes out a position that you profoundly disagree with, um, you really only have one choice and that's sort of to resign. And I just, I, 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 I get the point. I get where Kevin is coming from. Um, um, and it probably depends somewhat on the definition of profoundly or the nature of the disagreement and all that kind of stuff. But, it, and in one really important way, I disagree. And this is very inside baseball think tank wonkery stuff. And, um, I'm not going to apologize for doing it because, this is who I am. And, uh, but Heritage, long before Kevin Roberts took over the place and made Heritage affirmatively worse, in my opinion, um, Heritage has always had a problem. It still has good people at it. I think they're, they're fleeing by the day. This latest resignation is just the latest reg- resignation. There a lot of people have left, mostly over Ukraine stuff. But um, uh, Heritage is... Heritage has always had a problem, which is what they call their one voice policy, which basically holds that every scholar at Heritage has to, in public, support the Heritage position across the board. And this was one of the reasons why um, they lost, um, they had to give up their policy journal, it was called Policy Review, which used to be a great journal. Um, It was picked up by Hoover for a long time, um, but they couldn't have it at Heritage because to have a good egghead magazine, you know, and that's what policy reviews aspired to be, which was like serious essays, serious papers, sort of in the spirit of the public interest kind of thing, debating and hashing out policy stuff. And policy review didn't work because the Heritage Foundation, this is, you know, this is 20 years ago, Heritage Foundation's position was uh, once we pick 
a policy approach, all ORs have to pull in the same direction. We all have to agree with it. And that position, that, that, that approach, I think is wildly antithetical to academic freedom. It's, it's antithetical to free speech, which is one of the funny things about how heritage is so bought into all of the culture war, uh, you know, anti-cancel culture, anti, you know, censorship stuff. And yet as a matter of longstanding policy, they, in effect, censor their own scholars um, when it comes to disagreements with the institution itself. Now, I'm not a purist on this. I get that there is, there is, um, there are, there are bounds, there are limits how far this kind of policy can go. Um, like you have to be civil and respectful to your colleagues. Um, you have to be, um, you know, if you're a conservative think tank, you have to be generally speaking pretty conservative, um, at least on your policy area um, to justify being there. Um, but the idea that somehow everybody on board has to agree about everything just isn't intellectually serious. You know, at National Review, we had profound disagreements about all sorts of things. One of the reasons why I created The Corner was I wanted to sort of show, not just tell, that there's actually a lot of intellectual and ideological heterogeneity and diversity um, on the right, and that we may all agree to one extent or another on first principles, but how you implement them and apply them and, um, and reason from them can differ pretty widely. And, um, and I will say at AI, which I sincerely think is there, there are quite a few good think tanks out there. I think AI is the best and my biases and priors are pretty obvious to everybody. Um, we are really robustly in favor of academic freedom. Like if the institution, the relative parties that hire people like your field of research, like the thing that you're, that you do and think it fits with the overall mission of AI, then they hire you. But they don't, you know, if you vote Democrat or you like Democrats over Republicans, or if you um, disagree profoundly with what the econ department is doing on tax policy stuff, um, that's fine at AI. There is robust academic freedom, and we have lots and lots and lots of scholars who disagree with each other. Um, and... Uh, and we disagree about small things, big things, you know, lunchroom conversations, you know, there are carbon, t I, 10 years ago, the place was um, almost in a food fight about whether carbon taxes were good or bad and all that kind of stuff. We have those kinds of fights all the time. I want to say fight, I mean disagreements because everybody is supposed to treat each other with respect. The problem with heritage is that, well, the first problem is that it has this one voice policy. The second problem is, is that under the leadership, and I use that word advisedly, of Gethin Roberts, heritage is buying into a lot of populist garbage, a lot of, of, of I hate using the term isolationist because it is so historically fraught and it's so dishonestly used by people, but, um, you know, uh, neo-isolationist sort of historically left-wing or libertarian foreign policy approach um, where, you know, they demagogue the issue of aid to Ukraine in part because uh, I think they think that like being popular with the Tucker crowd is all that really matters. And, um, you know, so the ad they put out, which was full of bad math, first of all, you know, it echoed this op-ed that Kevin Roberts, the president of Heritage did, you know, it's basically said that every resident of Hawaii had more money going to Ukraine um, than they got from the federal government. And that that because of the Maui, you know, the 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 Maui fires prove in some supposedly really clever way that we can't help Ukraine. It's an unserious position. I, just, I, mean, I want to put that seriously. I have all sorts of disagreements with people uh, about foreign policy stuff and defense stuff historically at, at, at Heritage or at AI or wherever. That, that my point isn't, but like they were serious arguments from serious people. And the problem that Roberts is creating is that serious people cannot work at a place that takes these positions, um, particularly in the context of a one voice policy. 
you know, at National Review, I did it pretty often. I mean, not not like every issue or anything like that. But if I disagreed with the editorial of National Review and I was a senior editor and, you know, was bought into, you know, read into the, the, the editorial process, I could write about how I disagree with my colleagues. Can't do that at Heritage. And so when you have an... Uh, have a really bad new approach that is aimed at pandering to sort of the vivek crowd, serious people um, are presented with a huge dilemma that causes them to quit. And that's why a bunch have. It's, there's an irony here because all the usual suspects are coming to the defense of heritage and talking about how the neocons, this and the, you know, the military industrial complex that is mad at heritage. So let's go in the way back machine for a second. Heritage was created by Ed Fulner and a couple other people uh, a half century ago because of Fulner and these guys' profound commitment to a strong national defense. Specifically, there was this huge debate in Congress. Fulner and I can't remember the other guy's name were good cold warrior, strong defense guys. And they were lobbying in favor of the SST. I think that's what it was called. It was a supersonic transport thing that allowed for refueling and of, of planes and vital to sort of Cold War missile defense kind of thing. I can't remember all the details. There was a big vote in Congress that they lost about funding the SST. And like two days after the vote, AI, my beloved AI, comes out with a fantastic position fa paper in favor of the SST. Fulner's like, what the hell? Like, we could have used this last week. Um, you know, these are great arguments. This would have been great ammo to persuade Congress to vote for the thing. And as legend has it, and this, I'm quoting from memory here, uh, John Miller did a great write-up about this in National Review, I don't know, 10 years ago. Anyway, uh, according to legend, Bill Baruti, who was then the president of AI, was like... Yeah, that was deliberate. We don't want to seem like we're trying to lobby or influence Congress. We're, we're wholly committed to sort of just good scholarship and not don't want to get messed up in the nitty-gritty of daily politics. Now, I think Baruti's position was, was too good by half and, or too pure by half, and he was wrong. But the lesson that, that, that Fulner and these guys took away from it was we got to be in the mix, right? We need a place that is paying attention to where the policy debate is and be on top of it. That was strong national defense was the, the primary thing that led to the creation of heritage in the first place. Uh, it's, you know, you guys know I have my issues with horseshoe theory, but heritage is now essentially on foreign policy stuff, pretty McGovernite. It is pretty much in the come home America frame. And I know they say all sorts of things about China. I don't trust them. Don't trust them at all, right? Vivek, um, who I think speaks for a lot of that crowd, you know, his position, Taiwan is, you know, once we can get, we can develop our homegrown chip technology, then we'll have no problem with China invading Taiwan. He said the other night on the debate that the only war I'll declare against the administrative state. Now, he also said some other really stupid things like the Constitution is why we won the Re American Revolution. Constitution came like 20 years after the American Revolution. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that, you know, like Articles of Confederation and whatnot that came before it. First of all, presidents don't declare war. But second of all, declaring for all the world to hear, you will not support using any f military force in, or support any wars for your presidency is a great way to invite a lot of wars. And one of the things I think that these guys just fail to understand is if you don't signal that you are going to defend your allies when it is hard, you will not have allies because allies only want help when they really need it. I understand strategic ambiguity and all that kind of stuff, but we have made pretty hard commitments that we will you know, support Taiwan. That could be wrong. You could have an argument about that. But declaring in advance that the only reason why we're against a country forcibly invading another country is that we have a narrow economic self-interest. And once we've solved that, we're fine with China crushing Taiwan is grotesque. And it's, the important point is it's, it's really stupid.
It's just really stupid. Similarly, so many of these arguments about Ukraine, it's a lot of people, I think, that are cosplaying Iraq war debates without understanding some incredibly important differences. I can't tell you how many people tell me, oh, you just want Americans to fight and die in Ukraine. And it's like, no, I want to help the Ukrainians so that Americans don't have to fight and die anywhere. Normally, the argument, like if, if we had sent troops to Ukraine, the argument would be, why can't the Ukrainians fight for themselves? We can help them. But like, why do we have to have boots on the ground? We don't have boots on the ground in Ukraine. Yeah, we got a couple of guys defending diplomatic personnel and whatnot. But we don't have troops fighting there, right? We're not sending army, the U.S. Army, to go fight in, in Ukraine. But people want to have that argument. So they pretend that that's what is going on. And it's just, it's real. Some people, it's really weird. It's like they actually believe that American troops are there. But back to the point about allies, I get DeSantis's point about having Europe stand up and pull their weight and all that kind of thing about Ukraine. And I'm in favor of some European countries standing up and pulling their weight more about Ukraine. I think Germany is backsliding. That's bad. I think it was Nikki who said, and she had a high count. She had like 11 countries. I'm not sure it's 11 countries, but a lot of countries are, in terms of the, as a percent of their GDP, spending a lot more than, or they're spending more than we are as, in terms of our, as a percent of GDP. But second of all, like this idea that Vivek has um, and that DeSantis flirts with, that we don't have any obligations to, to help with something that our allies care a lot about. I'm not calling Ukraine an ally. Ukraine wants to be an ally. But Ukraine wants to win a war where they're being invaded and people are being raped and murdered and children are being kidnapped. And all you get from a lot of these jackasses is a sort of Corey Lewandowski wah, wah, about just some of the most grotesque violations of um, war crimes that we have seen. Certainly we've seen on the European continent in our lifetimes. It's grotesque. But you know who is our ally? It's Great Britain, and France, and Germany, and all these other countries that are in this thing called NATO. And they care a great deal about Ukraine. And this idea that somehow we should have no reciprocity, that we should not have leadership or even followership in something that is the defining cause for, for, for NATO right now, I just think is weird and kind of naive. The idea that like, that Heritage and all these guys have gotten themselves into that simple international engagement and leadership in the world is a slippery slope to globalism and one world government and all that kind of stuff is boob bait. It's just, it's, it's, it's no nothingism that is being gussied up as sort of a serious argument. And I think, you know, the mask slipped a little bit. Um, I saw these clips, some, you know, sort of group, Fighting Anti-Semitism published these clips, because I don't watch Tucker, from Tucker Carlson's interview with this guy McCormick, some former colonel or general who um, I saw because J.D. Vance came to McCormick's defense. And McCormick, you know, he doesn't say the word Jews. He doesn't say the word bagel-snarfing warmonger either. But if you watch the clips, it's pretty clear he's talking about how Ukraine is that we are helping Ukraine because of the Jews. All the people he names who are influential about all this are Jews. He says that there's a certain group of Americans who, because of ethnic reasons, uh, their ancestors were oppressed by Russians, that they don't like Russians. Basically, what he's talking about is that because 100 years ago, because of pogroms, um, Jews want payback against Russia. I mean, what's incredibly stupid, I mean, so much that's stupid about that, but starting with, you know where a lot of the pogroms took place? Ukraine. Ukraine has a rich and robust history of anti-Semitism. Uh, you know where Fiddler on the Roof takes place? Ukraine. You know where my people come from is from the pale of the settlement, right? Which is not necessarily just Ukraine, but it's Poland and Lithuania and all that kind of stuff. Anti-Semitism in Ukraine was profound. It was at the czar's, you know, orders often, awesome, often, but it was also very grass, grassroots. I mean, there's a lot of anti-Semitism um, historically in Ukraine. And so this idea that somehow because Russians were mean to Jews, 
where and most Jews didn't live in Russia proper. That was the whole point of the Pale of the Settlement is that Catherine the Great and some of the other czars shoved all the Jews out and didn't let them live in the better parts of Russia, forced them to live outside of Russia. But the idea that like Jews have this century old grudge against uh, Russia, but just love Ukraine is, is, is it's one of these sort of classic, dumb, anti-Semitic things where you just sort of grab the nearest argument to hand and pretend it's like a serious thing. And of course, Tucker's nodding along and all of this kind of thing. And this gets into this larger thing, which I should probably write about again, about the dumb uses and abuses of the word neocon and neoconservative. But, uh, you know, this sort of... I'm, by no means, I'm not accusing anybody at Heritage or, or Vivek, any of these public people. The only person I'm accusing of actual anti-Semitism, and it's sort of a dumbass form of anti-Semitism, is this McCormick guy. It, it tells you something interesting when J.D. Vance comes to the defense of this guy, saying how he's been a consistent and, 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 and insightful contrarian voice on, on, on the war in Ukraine. Um, and not saying anything about the incredibly sinister and gross sort of uh, allusions to uh, Jewish perfidy or neocon, but by which these people mean Jew um, perfidy, tells you something about, you know, where the blind spots are. It also tells you something because from what I gather, this McCormick guy has just been wrong about everything. He thought the war was over in the first three days. He's one of these guys who thought Putin was a genius and that the Ukrainians would be, you know, that Kiev would fall in a week kind of guy. These are the people that are providing the tent poles, providing the sort of permission structure for arguments for withdrawing, uh, for ceasing aid to Ukraine. I'm in favor of aiding Ukraine, first of all, because I think it's in America's national interest. I'm going to have Luke Coffey back on the remnant. We'll talk about this more. Um, Luke Coffey, someone who left Heritage. I'm in favor of helping Ukraine because I think it's in America's interest. I think this is, this is pennies on the dollar. Um, to have Ukrainians fighting Russians rather than Americans fighting Russians. Um, I think weakening Putin's hold, weakening Russia is, there are, there are definitely potential risks, but it's, it's, it's a good thing. I think Russia is a sinister villain in the world. And when I say Russia, I mean the Russian government and the Russian state. Depleting its military for a decade or more, these are in American, this is in the American national interest. I'm also, because I have no problem with idealism and foreign policy, so long as it's not idealism alone, it's a good and righteous and just cause. There is no remotely objective, factual, reality-based argument that I have ever seen that doesn't require morally serious people from saying Russia is the villain here. My, my sincere anti-interventionist friends, my sincere skeptics about helping Ukraine, they all concede that at least. They all concede that, that, that Putin is a profound villain here. That the rape and torture and deliberate targeting of, of, of civilians and the, ab, the abduction of children, the, the scales, there's just no compar and, and comparison between Ukrainians trying to defend themselves, Putin inventing a pretext that was all sort of historical nonsense about, you know, greater Russia this and Nazis controlling Ukraine that. Um, Putin's the villain. Putin is the bad guy. And Russia, as a moral thing, should be stopped. But also there's a moral hazard thing that gets to American national interest, which is if you keep letting countries do this kind of thing, They'll do it more. And, you know, the, the ultra-nationalists around Putin, they think that they should have a bunch of NATO countries back. I don't trust Donald Trump not to agree with them. Uh, this just seems like such an obvious, straightforward argument, and it's the kind of argument that Heritage would be leading on until a few years ago, but for sort of the age of Trump and, and you know, policy research by Twitter polling. And um, I think it's just, it's, it's tragic. It's, it's profoundly bad for conservatism and it's bad for America. And it is just amazing to me how quickly so many people on the right can basically embrace the sorts of arguments and logic that they spent, that we spent our lives finding fault with. It's just, it's, it's just astounding and depressing to me.
I do have some fun announcements. Um, I think they're fun. Uh, first of all, it was on this day in 2001, 22 years ago, uh, that the fair Jessica agreed uh, to marry me. Well, I guess that's not quite right. She agreed a couple, you know, a, a little earlier because I asked her to marry me in London. But she went through with it on this day in 2001. And um, so we've been married for 22 years. I'm still shocked that uh, she went through with it and that she stuck with me. It's funny. We had a, so I had to RSVP to a colleague's wedding this week and it's all online now, whatever. And one of the things they ask you to put in after, you know, like whether you have dietary restrictions, whatever is, do you have any marriage advice for the couple? And I put down happy wife, happy life. And I asked the fair Jessica and she said, yeah, that's good. But also put if you're if 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 he won't clean up after himself, spend the money to find someone who will, um, which I thought was amusing, and uh, and I don't have any profound marriage advice for anybody, but um, you know, one of the one of my only regrets I was just talking to the fair Jessica about this. One of my only regrets about our wedding, which was fantastic, we just had this great, great, great wedding in the San Juan Islands in Friday Harbor at my sister-in-law's house. Um, we picked that in part because sort of halfway between Alaska and D.C. Um, and, uh, but also like, you know, my wife kind of just wanted to do an elopement thing. And I said, I couldn't do that because my brother had eloped and my parents need to, you know, have at least one real wedding for the kids. And, um, um, and I wanted a real wedding. And, um, so we agreed to do this, which was, you know, sort of family, intimate, smaller, but still a good crowd. We had a band, we had, a, you know, a bunch of people. Also, one of the great things about making people travel for your wedding is it gives everybody who doesn't actually want to be there an excuse not to go. And so everybody who was there wanted to be there, which was great. And it was just a really fantastic time. But my the one regret is like August 25th is not a great day to get married because you're always... Like, first of all, I think this is the first time we've been home without the kid around um, in a long time on August 25th. Usually we're driving cross country at this point. Usually we're someplace weird and it's like very, very difficult to plan so something nice for your anniversary. Um, and uh, um, so I could have, if I could do it all over again, I might have picked a different date. Though the weather was so perfect for our wedding. Um and uh, it was also right before 9-11. I mean, um, I've told this story before. I've written about it before. But, you know, so we go to Europe for the honeymoon, great honeymoon, come back. My wife has to fly straight back to Washington to, to go back to her job working for John Ashcroft at the Justice Department. I had to go back to Friday Harbor, back to the San Juan Islands outside of, you know, in Washington State. Uh, to pick up Cosmo the Wonder Dog, the greatest dog who ever lived or ever will live. And because he'd stayed there while we were on our honeymoon. And the next day or two days later, I'm in a motel room in, in Pendleton, Oregon, because I drove too far south. I should have cut east sooner. And um, and that was 9-11. And um, in a weird way, like, given how serious Jess and I were before we got married, um, the bigger change in my life for at least a while was, was at least until Lucy was born, was, um, was 9-11. And it was very, very weird to be half a, con you know, across a continent away, um, you know, getting updates from my wife about how she's being evacuated from the Justice Department on 9-11. Um, but anyway, enough of memory lane stuff. The other exciting news, which I have held off explaining to you guys, and we'll see how many people listened this far, um, remember like, I don't know when this was six months ago. Um, I was in Portland, Oregon for something and I was like, don't worry, it's a good thing. And that's got me on this kick about, you know, like how craptacular Portland has become and how depressing it is. Um, the reason we were there is we were putting in an order for, um, a pretty awesome, 
RV thing. We got a conversion van um, and it's ready for pickup. And yes, we're going to be those people. After my mom died, um, we kind of had this get busy living, get busy dying kind of thing. So we um, took a chunk <laughs> of the money from my mom's estate and all that and um, and put an order for this, 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 this sprinter. And um, we're psyched. We do so much cross-country driving. We like to travel with our dogs. And, um, and so, uh, in about, I don't know what today's the 25th in a couple weeks, I am going to, I'm not making this up. Jess will already be on the West coast. I'm going to drive across country in a rental with, uh, the dogs and meet Jess in Portland pick up our van, put the dogs in it, and then drive back um, with the whole crew um, on the maiden voyage of, 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 our, our, of, our, of our van life adventure. And um, uh, at some point, we're going to have to come up with a name for this thing. But uh, I think I'm going to be, you know, we're, we're, we're tricking it out um, in all sorts of ways. You know, I'm going to, um, I'm beholden to Elon Musk because we're using Star, we're going to use Starlink um, because I'm going to use it to like travel and work at the same time. Um, very excited about it. I think it's going to be fun. Um, and you know, we're not super campers, but we're going to do some camping. Um, but we are uh, we are major road warriors, and I'm I'm a little jealous of Steve who has put more miles on the road this summer than I have. But this should help. And um, people have advice, tips on cool places to go that maybe I haven't been, any of that kind of stuff, uh, send my way. But that's sort of the big, um, exciting thing going on with us, um, uh, you know, because it's so vital. I keep hearing from people to get outside the Beltway. Um, I get outside the Beltway quite a bit, but um, this is going to help. And um, so you may be reading G-Files and hearing podcasts in the future from random spots um, in this wonderful, great country of ours. And uh, anyway, I think it's pretty exciting and fun and um, and opens up all sorts of interesting possibilities. And with that, I guess I am done. Uh, please subscribe to The Dispatch if you can. Um, it's It's just really starting to fire on all cylinders. We have great stuff every day. Um, we're going to do more and more great stuff. We're going to be all over the place on everything 2024 related for the next year and a half. Um, yeah, Sarah is selfishly um, taking some time off to procreate. Um, uh, she's due any day now. Um, but uh, um, really, I you know, I'm not asking for charity because I just think it is a... Um, it is a great value. I actually think it's um, a bargain at 10 bucks a month. You know, what is that? 33 cents a day, something like that. And um, the product itself, products itself are great. I mean, I think Kevin, if Kevin Williamson launched a Substack, or if Nick Katogio lost a Substack, would that be worth 10 bucks a month to you? Some people know, some people yes. But the some people, yes, who aren't subscribing, you get both for 10 bucks a month. You get also the G file for 10 bucks a month. You also help pay for the remnant. You get Scott Lincecum's uh, capitalism thing, which is, is, is in terms of just usefulness, um, one of the best things if you're interested in like policy and free market stuff um, around today, um, you get you get Stop Brother Starwalt, who, yes, we're going to have back on soon. Um, and you get the Morning Dispatch, which I, I honestly think, and, and I'm, I'm not alone, I think is one of the best news products out there and um, really gives you um, a great rundown of what is going on in the world that's not, de that's not designed to make you angry, that's not designed to sort of uh, get you worked up about the... BS controversy of the day. 
Um, and it alone is easily worth 10 bucks a month. So when you put all these things together, you know, and I'm not even covering everything that we've got, um, you're really talking about getting like Kevin Williamson for 50 cents a month or a dollar a month. Talking about Nick, about getting Nick Katojo for a dollar a month, me for a dollar a month. Um, and, um, and I just think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. And even if you're on the fence about that, um, and if you tried it for a trial for, for one month, I think you'd be convinced it is worth it. But even if that's not the case, if you think what we're trying to do here is important, if you think what we're trying to do here is um, a important, an important and useful corrective to the hot mess that is so much of our politics and of journalism and of the, uh, and of the right in particular, then again, I don't think it's charity, but you know, sometimes you buy those Girl Scout cookies because you love the cookies. I'm, I'm a Tagalog guy. And sometimes you do it because you like the cookies, but you also want to do the right thing by the Girl Scout. So if you're on the fence for some other reason, but you think what I do in terms of the remnant is valuable, or if you think what uh, David and Sarah do for advisory opinions or the Dispatch podcast or our politics newsletter, which, you know, Drucker and those guys are, and Egger are killing, do it to, you know, to sort of, you know, help us out, you know? Don't do it just to help us out because I really think you get something valuable in return. But if you think you're getting something valuable for nothing right now, maybe you could sign up. So enough of all that. Gosh, I feel like, again, I have like 5,000 other things I wanted to talk to you guys about. Um, in the comments, let me know whether you think going longer than an hour is a bad thing because there are days where I could easily do this much longer. There are days where I shouldn't do it and maybe today is one of them. Tell me that too. But, uh, you know, there are days where I just, I have so much stuff that I know I'm not going to write about because I still haven't convinced Steve about this group blog thing that I kind of want to get out of my system. And, um, and this is sort of the place to do it. So let me know if you think it's just folly to go longer than an hour on these solo tirades. And, uh, let me know about anything else, including, you know, van life recommendations. And with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.